Well, good morning once again. Boy, it's good to be with you this morning. We've got a number of moving parts today, and we always try to transition things one thing into the next as well as we can to kind of keep things moving along in the service. And I'll tell you, the one thing we didn't plan on this morning was you, adults, not being able to get over the handshaking uh, time. So that, that threw us off a little bit this morning, but we're going to get on uh, from there. So kids, if you're in the service with us, you're not normally in the service with us, we are in a series called Awakening out of the book of Nehemiah. So everyone, you get your Bibles out this morning, find your way to the book of Nehemiah. If you're using that black Bible that's in the pews in front of you, many of you use that. Uh, it is on page 507 is where we will be today. Seven. We're using the New International Version uh, of the Bible. If you're using an app or a smartphone or something like that, a U version will get you there uh, to Nehemiah chapter 4. We are in a sermon series called Awakening, dealing with the life of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is a very inspiring character. Uh, there's a lot that he does in this book that is really encouraging. There's many leadership books that have been written about the way that he approaches the problem of building the wall there in Jerusalem and going back to it. At the baseline, every venture, if you will, uh, starts with great inspiration. If you start a football season, the Buffalo Bills are starting football season. Some of you, maybe kids, maybe you're starting your football team's football season. You always start at the beginning of the season with an all or nothing approach. You want to win the season. You want to win the championship. You want to be the very best that you can possibly be. If you're starting a new year in school, middle schoolers, you want to have a good year in middle school. High schoolers, I went to the... Um, to the big homecoming uh, this weekend at Williamsville South, and uh, the seniors were walking around with, you knew who the seniors were because they had white t-shirts that said seniors on it. Like, they really want this year to be the very best year they could possibly have. This is their last year in high school, and they really want it to go well. Uh, we do the same thing if you started college this year, uh, if you've uh, gotten married this year, if you've decided to have kids, those families that had brought their kids up here on stage, uh, I'll never forget her. I get the opportunity to, to meet with people often when they're having their first child. And there's so much that changes in your life when you have that first child. It's just been you and your spouse. And now there's this other life that you have been given the responsibility to caretake for. And so it's a, it's a big thing. And like there's this big change. And you've got to be inspired uh, to be able to do things well. If not, you're just going to kind of stumble through it. The same is the case with the spiritual life as well. We need to be inspired to do things for God, to follow God's call. Uh, Nehemiah needed it here to be able to build this wall, what God was calling him to do, and he was going to be inspired. It's no different for us here as a church. Uh, if we are going to start a church, we planted a church in North Tonawanda, there's going to have to be something that drives us uh, to do that, to be inspired to do that. Here as a church, as we are trying to grow and trying to move forward and have more influence here in this community, there's going to have to be something that inspires us to go forward. So the first thought I have for you this morning is that with every great inspiration has to come a great level of commitment. You can't just be inspired to say, that's really what I want to do. That's what I want to pursue. That's what I want to be when I grow up. You can't just have that without a great level of commitment. College students have to decide that first semester, second semester of college, that they're actually going to finish college. 
they, they, they started, they had a good time, and all of a sudden the classes are a lot more difficult than they thought, and they have to actually decide, you know what, I'm going to do this thing. Uh, when we first get married, you have to go through the honeymoon season and just look at each other and realize, you know what, we're in this for the long haul. Uh, there's an author, a Christian author, who writes a lot of books on counseling and different things like that. It's Paul David Tripp, and he wrote a book about marriage, one of his more famous ones. that says, what did you expect? <laughs> marriage is going to take a commitment. What did you expect? Yeah, it's, it's hard. There's some stuff you don't like about each other, and there's some things that aren't working out real well, and it's not exactly how you drew it up. What else did you expect? It's kind of the approach that he has in that. But in that, there must be inspiration that says there should be more, but it's going to have to be followed by a strong commitment to what God has put in your heart and in your life. So often, conflict is inevitable for the things that matter the most. Conflict is inevitable for the things that matter the most. If you're there in Nehemiah chapter 4, I want to give you a little bit of background, particularly for you kids that are here with us, you haven't been with us in the service. I want to give you a little background on what's going on here. Nehemiah chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 1, even though that's not our passage for today. There's some funny names in here as well, kids. When Sinbalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. That means he was angry, he was upset. Imagine the smoke coming off of his head. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will you think they can finish it in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble as burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God. This is Nehemiah speaking. For we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as a plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of builders, of the builders. And then he says, So we were committed to it. We rebuilt the wall to all that reached half of its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. Now, a few weeks ago, we started this sermon series, and I used an illustration that. I think was helpful to be able to figure out where it is that we're at in the Old Testament. And some of you said, man, I wish that our kids were in here so they could see that. And so we're going to do that again this morning. I'm going to very quickly take you through uh, some of the Old Testament to be able to help you see how we get to this book. So this is a, these are like mega Jenga blocks. Don't do that. Okay. Are we back? Okay. Sorry. Oh, 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 oh. Be careful. All right. So we got mega Jenga blocks to be able to help us through this portion. You follow me now? All right, so here we go. As we make our way through Scripture, what I want you to do is to open your Bibles to the table of contents. The table of contents. Parents, reach over. It's your job this morning. So if I'm talking about inspiration today, it's your job to be able to help uh, get through the service this morning. Uh, kids, lean over to your parents and say, I hope that he inspires me today. Kids, lean over to your parents and say, I hope that he inspires me today. Kids, lean, parents, lean to your kids and say, I hope that he inspires you today. Parents, tell your kids, even if he doesn't, you have to stay awake. <laughs> kids, tell your parents, even if he doesn't, you have to stay awake. All right. 
So if we work through our table of contents, if we work through our table of contents, you'll see first the book of Genesis. Genesis is what we learn about the origins of all things, how the earth was created, how God put pieces together that started all things. We meet Adam and Eve and Noah and all the forefathers. Exodus, we find uh, that now the people of Israel have made their way. We, we finished a sermon series recently where Joseph is in Egypt. And so this book of Exodus says, uh, we're in trouble. We've been enslaved. We need to get out of Egypt. And Moses, we meet Moses who is going to take the people out of Egypt. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, we find uh, God's people are in the desert. And they're making their way through uh, to what they hope to be the promised land. Uh, then we come to Numbers, where God gives all kinds of instructions for his people and how they are to live their lives and what they are supposed to do as they are making their way through the desert. What, how does he want them to live? What would it look like for the Jewish people to live as God's people? Deuteronomy is where we find the Ten Commandments, the, the law of how we are supposed to live and what we do there. Um, Deuteronomy, Joshua. We get to the edge of the promised land. And because of sin, uh, Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land. There's a number of reasons why this has happened. But because of sin, he's not allowed to go in. And we meet Joshua. And Joshua has been uh, the right-hand man of Moses throughout his entire time moving people through uh, towards the promised land. But Joshua tells his family here on Family Sunday, he needs to know. He says, as for me and my house, we will do what? We will serve the Lord. That's the way Joshua was going to lead. And so after Joshua, we have a book that's called what? Judges. The book of Judges has all these different leaders who come and they lead God's people. And they tell God's people uh, where to go and, and what God is saying them. And many of them are good, strong leaders. But some of them are not, and they fail God's people, and they, they lead in different ways. And it really gets confusing as we follow through that uh, to be able to see uh, why is it that they are getting distracted? Well, because their leadership is getting distracted. They're not following the rules and regulations and the law that was laid out for God's people to live. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth is an interesting book because Ruth is all about this uh, woman who is not an Israelite, but she, as the Israelites were in famine in another land, she meets the Israelites, she marries into the family, and she decides that your people will be my people, is what she tells her mother-in-law. Uh, your God will be my God, and I'm going all in on the people of God. I'm going all in on what God has shown you to be the truth. I believe that that is for me. And this is the story of Ruth coming back to the people of Israel, God's people. What's after Ruth? I lost track. First Samuel, thank you. So first Samuel, we get to first Samuel, we start to meet some characters you're going to hear about more and more. First of all, there is Samuel. So Samuel, uh, we open up the book of first Samuel and we meet him in a very similar way uh, to our baby dedication service that we just had a few moments ago. His mother and father have been praying for this child to be born, been praying for years. And then the baby is Born, And you know what they do? They didn't just come in and do a dedication service at their church. They actually took their child to the church, Samuel, and said, here, you can have him. He's God's. And the priest took him and raised him there, and he becomes a great leader. So we have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And Samuel is telling God's people that 
uh, you do not need a king. God's people keep asking and they say, well, these judges aren't working out so well for us. <coughs> They're leading us astray. And we look at all these other nations. We just had a king. That king would really fix everything. A benevolent king would just make things beautiful and wonderful. We know that that's not the case. And Samuel kept telling people, he said, no, uh, really, God is your king. He is going to lead you. But they were insistent to say, we want a king. And so we get to those books of First and Second Kings. And we learn about, in First Kings, we meet King Saul. Second Kings, uh, we learn that King Saul is not going to be a good fit. Samuel has, has done what? He's anointed another king, a different lineage, a different line. There's this man after God's own heart, the youngest of all of his brothers, King David. And he is going to be the one to rule and reign. But as we get through First and Second Kings, we start to find that things are astray again. And as we learn more about all these kings, uh, that really it's only that first generation of kings that even did a decent job of following God's commands. And they get farther and farther and farther away from him. And so you have the two books of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. And these are another way of looking at what has happened to the kingdom. Now the kingdom is split and it's divided. It's no longer just the kingdom of Israel. Now there's this division. There was 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's two tribes and, and uh, 10 tribes. There's this split that happens. And the two tribes of Judah are trying to figure out. So they start having separate kings. And all this battle, all this fighting is going on. So first and second Chronicles, what comes next? Ezra. So as we open up the book of Ezra, we find that times are beginning to change. There's divisions in the kingdom have happened. And all of the problems that we see happening all around are going to start to come to fruition. And the prophet Ezra is telling and saying, we can't continue to go down this path. Nehemiah, where we're going to be today, And then Esther, which follows. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are in a season where the kingdoms have fallen. The kingdoms, there has been the Assyrians have come in, the Babylonians, the Assyrians have come in, and they've taken God's people out of their land. Everything has come and, and been separated and pulled apart. But we call this section, we call this tower, if you will, up to this point, I told you that was Nehemiah there. I got a piece of tape so I'd be able to mark it so you could see it from the front here. So if I put this, can everyone see this little piece of tape? Ezra and Nehemiah. So this is Nehemiah. This is where we are today in what are called the historical narrative, the historical books of the Bible. So if you started at the beginning, over here on my on my left, your left as well, starting at the bottom, we go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We go all the way through there up to this point. Uh, that stack that you see right now is the history of the Bible. And that orange sticker shows you to where we are of the Old Testament. This is where all the history has come in. But if you're looking at your Bibles, you'll see, wait a minute, there's still in my table of contents, there's a lot more books that are following here. <coughs> So what happens is that those things are happening at the same time that the rest of this is happening. So the next book of your Bibles is the book of Job. So Job happens the same time as Genesis. 
Job is written, and a lot of the earliest manuscripts we have is Job and what he talks about his life that he was living then. And then we have what? Psalms and Proverbs. Let's see here. Psalms and Proverbs. Where's a good spot? Psalms, Proverbs. So Psalms and Proverbs are written by Kings David and King Solomon mostly. And this literature at, at the kingdom is at its highest point in this area. This is where the kingdom is at its strongest. And people want to hear these, uh, this poetry. They want to hear this wisdom literature. What comes after that? Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon are written by King Solomon. Uh, they are an out. And a wisdom literature talking about uh, our view of the world and what he has learned. Solomon as the smartest man ever to live, the wisest man ever to live. And then he writes this song, this poetry to his wife, confessing his love for her. When I was in high school is when I met my wife, Erin, now. But we were dating in high school and there was a Valentine's Day where my mom allowed me to have Erin come over. And I made her pancakes dinner for Valentine's Day. And she made all of my sisters crowd into a little room on the side so that I could have the dining room table to make pancakes and eggs for Valentine's Day. And my big finale, my big finish was a song that I had written for her. And the song was called My Little Rose Petal. <laughs> Sing, I have no idea. I don't actually know what this song does. Oh, I know. But my three sisters, who had been confined, put in solitary confinement, constantly mocked me that week, that month, that year. My little rose petal. <laughs> Who's laughing now? There's my wife right there. Exactly. Where were we at? Song of Solomon. What's after that? Help me out. What? Isaiah. Thank you. Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet that comes, and he looks at the things that are around him. He says, you have got to change people. You have gotten away from the things of the Lord. And if you don't, trouble will be coming. Isaiah, and then Jeremiah, these are prophets and lamentations. Thus saith the Lord, you must come back to God. You have gotten away from where you should be. Uh, and so, uh, and Jeremiah and Lamentations are pretty dark books. If you don't follow God's leading, it is going to get very bad for you. The prophecy is saying things are going to get worse. Follow God's commands. Is Ezekiel next? Ezekiel and Daniel. Now, Ezekiel and Daniel are very key prophets in Scripture. I'm going to set these two guys aside, Ezekiel, Daniel. I'll give you an explanation of what comes after that. Then we have what we call the minor prophets because their books are a little bit smaller. Hosea and Joel, Amos and Obadiah, Jonah. Oh, that one didn't move. Let's see. Jonah, Micah. Let's see. I want to take this one out, but I have to move that tape so you know where it was. Nahum, Habakkuk, and then there's three more prophets that finish out, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So these are the, the minor prophets that finish out what we see as the Old Testament. But what I'm trying to show you here 
is that if you saw that mark where Nehemiah was, all of scripture had happened up to that point. And so all of these guys are in the middle of all of that. It's all kind of happening at the same time. What we know about First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and, and even where Samuel's living, it's all kind of in the middle there. And as these different prophets are saying, if you don't get your act straight, things are going to get bad. And during the lifetime, during the lifetime of Ezekiel and Daniel, what happens? Basically, now is when what we call uh, the exile happens. Where all that, that we see ahead, all of it comes what? <laughs> Toppling down. And so this is the time frame. Things are in ruins. And Nehemiah, remember I told you there would be a little tag on it? So Nehemiah is in the middle of all of this rubble. He's looking around, and during his time frame, the book of Ezra is written, and the guy named Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah are going to be given permission by the Assyrians to go back and rebuild the walls. When we're talking about rebuilding walls, literally the city around Jerusalem, the walls have come down because of all of the battle and all the war and all the strain on the city. And they've been given permission to go back. And Zerubbabel goes back first, followed by Ezra, who came second about 50 years later, and as Ezra comes back, then he sends some men back to talk to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, just like we would if we had sent people out for a church plant, we said, how's that church plant going? Nehemiah asks them, he says, how are things going there? How's the repairs going? And the report comes back. The report is not good. The walls are still down. We need to do something about it. And Nehemiah goes to the king and gets permission from the king, not a Christian king, the Assyrian king, to go back and begin rebuilding the walls. So he's begun the rebuilding process. And now, as we open up chapter 4, all the different peoples around begin mocking and chastising and saying, how are we going to rebuild the walls? They are such a mess there's no way that this can be put together. Can you do it in a day? He actually does it in 52 days. He says even the wall, if you get it rebuilt, a fox could come running along and knock it over. Now, I don't know how much work it takes for a fox to knock something over, but they did, apparently. As we look at this, as we see where God is working, Nehemiah was up against some very difficult things. But as I said, conflict is inevitable with the things that matter the most. Take out those white sheets of paper that you got in your outline this morning. Conflict is inevitable in the things that matter the most. But mature faith rises to the challenge. Mature faith rises to the challenge or maturing faith. We've got our kids in the service today, and our desire is that they would mature and grow like Christ. We talked about that during the baby dedication part of our service. And we are very clear about that here in our context, in our worship gatherings. When we bring a baby in and pray for that baby, we, we are not in any way able to say that they will live their lives following Christ. No, we are actually charging the parents, the family, the church to lead, to disciple so this morning I've got four fill-ins for you that help us as we look at how we are to respond. How will faith mature? How will we be able to rise to the challenge? Here's your first fill-in for you this morning. Take your pencils, pens, and mark this. 
Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead, and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were what? They were very angry. So they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet his threat. Watch and pray. Many of you are familiar with the story. Kids, you would be familiar with the story. I hope you've heard it already of, of Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. Their responsibility was to do what? There's walls there as well. To march around the city. And as they marched around the city, they were to pray that God would move and that God would work. Were they supposed to do anything at all? They were to watch and pray. Walk and pray. And as they went around and around and around the city, particularly on the seventh day, they walked around the city seven times and they blew the trumpet's horns and they shouted with a mighty war cry and then they attacked the walls. No. They watched God move. Watch and pray. In the early 2000s, I was asked to be part of a a prayer walking initiative that happened in Greenville, South Carolina. We wanted to plant a new church in Greenville, South Carolina. They asked different pastors from there to come and just pray for the area. And I enthusiastically said, yeah, I'm excited about what you want to do in this certain part of the, the city. And so we came and they, they gave us our tools for prayer walking. They gave each and every one of us a fanny pack. Parents, raise your hand if you at one point owned a fanny pack in your life. Kids, tell your parents, I would be too embarrassed to raise my hand if I were you. What is a fanny pack? It's this little pack that goes around your waist and you can stick all of your needs in it. It's like a purse around your waist. It's a fantastic tool. But none of us wear fanny packs. They're obnoxious. What they gave us in the middle of the hood was a fanny pack full of birdseed. And our job was to walk through the neighborhood, and it was a tangible way to help us be reminded that we were planting seeds in God's kingdom. And so as we walked around the neighborhood, we were supposed to take out of that fanny pack bird seed and throw it onto people's yards while they were staring at us. I didn't take my fanny pack out of the car. I did pray and walk through that city. Why? Because God teaches us. He said, you need to pray and understand that I am going to do the work. The walls in Jericho fell down not because of what people did, but because of what God had done. And Nehemiah knows here. He says, verse 9, we prayed to our God. We posted a guard at night, day and night, to meet this threat, and they continued to work. Your first fill-in, if we're going to respond to conflict, is going to be watch and pray. Secondly, aim at the target. Aim at the target. Verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers was giving out, and there's much rubble. We cannot build this wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over. They didn't just say it once. They said this ten times over. Wherever we turn, wherever you turn, they will attack us. 
Therefore, I stationed some people behind the lowest points in the wall, the exposed places. I posted them by their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And after I looked things over, I looked up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who was great and awesome. Fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard what we were aware of, their plot, and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. In Scripture, we read uh, the story of David and Goliath. David comes up to the brook. He picks up five smooth stones. And he puts them in a sling, and he attacks the enemy, Goliath. He puts the stone in the sling, spins it around, and shoots it, and hits him where? Hits him in the head. He doesn't just fling it around all over the place and hope that it hits something. It's a very direct, calculated shot. And what happens here when we look at this in Nehemiah, and actually the rest of the book of Nehemiah, adults, as we go through the rest of the book, you will see that the enemies continue to threaten. The enemies continue to say what they are going to do and never do anything. They never attack. They never come into the city at night. They never do anything, but they get into people's heads. And instead of aiming at the target, they start aiming at one another. These are family members. Friends, family, the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over. Said, wherever we are, they're going to attack us. The reality was they weren't going to attack. And what does he tell them? Fight for your families. Look at the person sitting next to you and say, it's not okay to aim at each other. It's not okay to aim at each other. You must aim at the target. Look at the person on the other side of you and say this. It's my job to fight for my family. It's my job to fight for my family. Look what Nehemiah says here. He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And what does the enemy do? Nothing. The enemy does nothing. Once they're aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, that God was backing them, they were able to return to the wall and do their own work. Thirdly, thirdly, learn to adapt. Learn to adapt. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a a sword in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive, it's spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. But wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there and what? Our God will fight for us. (coughs) Learning to adapt. The landscape looked a little different than Nehemiah expected. (coughs) The enemy looked a little different than he anticipated. They were more separated than he would like. He didn't like the idea that they were going to be vulnerable. So what does he do? He says, you know, in one hand you're going to hold a weapon, and in the other hand you're going to try to put this wall back together. You're going to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand. How are you supposed to work at that point? But they did. Why? 
because they needed to learn to adapt. Learn to adapt. And what happens if we're going to respond to conflict? Because we said conflict is inevitable for the things that matter the most. We're going to have to learn to adapt and adjust and change. Your last feeling this morning is this. Leaders eat last. Leaders eat last. This is a a thing that was taught to me while I was in the Marine Corps. I didn't know this was a thing. This was a statement or anything like that. It wasn't until I got in the Marines. Then I had, I thought that when you kind of got yourself in a leadership position, now you have the honor and privilege of being at the front of the line. I was scolded very quickly on that. I said, no, no, no. If you want to be a squad leader, you want to be a guide, you want to be someone who's in charge of this platoon or in charge of people, you will always eat last. So what, what, what if we run out of food? Then you won't eat anything. Leaders eat last. Kids who are with us this morning, this is something that is helpful to you at any age, any location, any situation that you're in. Understand that leaders understand how to lead best when they serve others. Jesus teaches us this as well. But look how Nehemiah does it in verse 21. So we continued to work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each of us had his weapon even when we went to get water. He's not talking about just his people. He's saying, I as the leader, I as the, as the leadership crew that is leading all of these people to rebuild the wall, we always ate last. We worked together with these guys. Kids look over at your dad and said, maybe you should eat last today. Dads, look at your kids and say, maybe you should eat last today. (laughs) You see, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about it this way. Jesus says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. As Jesus is talking about it, he's telling this story. I'm going to use this illustration again so that you can kind of see. He's telling this story about how uh, the different guys come to work during the day. And there's a, a landowner, and he wants people to come and work for him and work in his fields. And early in the morning, at the earliest part of the morning, he hires someone. He says, do you want to work today for $10? And he says, yes, I'll work all day for you for $10. And the guy gets to work, and he starts working in the fields. And as he's there working in the fields, uh, it gets hotter and hotter during the day. And the landowner goes out, and he looks all over the land side because there's a lot of work to be done, and this one worker isn't going to be enough to get the job done. And as he works and as he toils out there in the sun, early in the morning has passed and now it's midday. And he goes out again, this landowner, and looks for people who will work. And he says, will you come and work for me? If you come and work for me today, I'll give you $10 to come and work in the fields for the day. And the guy says, you know what, that's a pretty good idea. I'm going to come and I'm going to work for $10 for you and I'll work all day long. And he says, okay, come on, come and work for me. And so he works into the afternoon, and now the sun is getting hotter and hotter. At the high noon, it was at its hottest point, but now they've been out there all day, and it's just cooking them, and they're working so, so hard. And as they come along, it gets into the evening, just before dinner. And as dinner time is approaching, he looks out, and he sees there's still much, much more to be done on the job site. He says, I'm going to need some more help. 
And so what does he do? He goes out and he says, is there anyone else who wants to come and work for $10 for me today so that we can get the job done? We can get to the end of the road here and be able to finish the work that is at hand. And as he puts the last pieces of the day together, he sees that there is, got one block down here. This one guy, see this right here? Let's say this represents Nehemiah. He comes in late to the game. But God has told, or, or the landowner has said, if you work for me, I will give you $10. And when, when it's time to pay up at the end of the day, what does the landowner do? The first shall be last, the last shall be first, is what Jesus says. Because every single person who worked that day, every single person who came out was coming out to work for $10. And what's the reality of the situation? Was that each one of them got paid $10 at the end of the day. And the job got completed. But those who had come out early in the morning were frustrated. They said, what's going on here? I thought that because when they look over, they say, well, that other guy, he's got $10. I've been here for 10 hours. I ought to get 10 times that. What does Jesus say? The last shall be first. And the first shall be last. And when, when we come to the end of time, when, when the landowner says the day is done, the work is complete, I will decide who gets paid what is the storyline that Jesus tells. And this illustration that we used here to talk about the Old Testament can also talk about what is going on in our lives and the world that we look at. There, there's much work to be done, but at some point the building is complete. And at that point, Jesus says... Time's up. And the illustration that Jesus is using there, he's saying, what's the, what's the way into heaven? What's the way to be close to him? Is I am the only way, the truth, and the life. And some people will be frustrated by that. He says, I've lived my whole life for you. This guy came in at the end. He says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the first shall be last. The last shall be first. I'm God and I decide what goes on. But we aren't hopeless because we, we have a way to be able to see what God is up to. We have a way to be able to be connected to what he has given to us. John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You could be the guy with a sticker at the very end coming through. The end of the work day and God says, here's the payment for your work day. And other people might get frustrated by that and take aim at you or take aim at me. But it doesn't matter because he is the landlord. He decides what goes on. 1 Corinthians 16, this is in your notes for you this morning. It says this, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous and be strong. Do everything in love. The Apostle Paul is talking to this church in Corinth. This church has started to gather together, to meet together, to worship together, to share in communion together as we are going to do this morning. And in the middle of all of that, they start to fight with each other. They start to do things that they say they're trying to debate whether or not they're going to get their $10 or not. And Paul is saying, be alert. Look out there. Pay attention to what's going on. I've shared this story here before, I'm sure, because Halloween's coming up, and I think about it every year when Halloween comes around. I was in the Marine Corps. 
I did go through all the military training and then later I was in the Marine Band. It's a good time. But in that military training, Halloween night, I won't forget it, Halloween night, 1999, we were digging our fighting holes. We had to dig, the holes have to be four feet deep, four to six feet deep, you're digging a grave, is basically what you're doing. But you're looking out into the darkness because we were told in this exercise that there was going to be another platoon that was going to be attacking us during the night. I remember it being Halloween night because we were given the opportunity once if one of the guys got out of the hole, because we have two guys in each fighting hole, the one guy could go and he could ask trick or treat and our instructor would give us a little piece of chocolate. And then we came running back to the hole. But late into the night, we're supposed to be alert looking out into the darkness, right? We're supposed to be defending those who are standing there next to you. These are your brothers that you're fighting with and fighting for. Late into the night, I remember the guys in the, in the fighting hole next to me, they kind of leaned over and said, hey, there is nothing going on. Just wake us up if something happens. And they went to sleep. And our instructor came down through, hole by hole, just checking on us, seeing how we were doing. And he came into our, I turned around and I saw him and he put a finger to his lips and he had this big, big weapon in his hands. It's called a saw. It's a big machine gun. He was just checking to make sure everything was easy. He says, how's it going? I said, there's nothing out there. I don't see anything. Okay. And wouldn't you know it, he comes to the hole next to us. And the two guys are sleeping in the bottom of the hole. And they're blanks. But a foot away from their head, he opens up fire with a saw, machine gun. Those boys had a hard time figuring out what was going on at that moment. What was that instructor trying to teach them? To be on the alert, to be looking out, to be aware of what's going on. And even if it doesn't seem like there's anything going on, you need to be aware of the situation that you're in. Nehemiah has very much used a very similar tactic here when he's saying, watch, aim, learn, lead, pay attention. Stand firm in the faith, Paul says. Be courageous, be strong, and in doing so, do everything in love. So that's where the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. So if we are going to be people who are looking forward, paying attention, keeping our eyes open for what God is doing and what God is working on, understand there is going to be conflict. It's inevitable. It always is when things matter. But maturity in the faith says that we will endure that and we will go forward because God is working on us and in us and through us.